please join me in welcoming in a conversation on our stage, CEO, Chairman of AT&T, and the National President of the Boy Scouts of America, Randall Stevenson, and the man that Time Magazine calls simply America's best preacher, Bishop T.D. Jakes. Please. I'm sure those loud cheers were for me. (laughs) (laughs) They were. They were. Yeah, I'm kind of doubtful. I've been looking forward to this. Bishop Jakes and I had a chance to meet just recently, and uh, it was a great conversation. Absolutely. You have a few people that you kind of interact with. You go, I could be friends with this guy. And and (laughs) this was one of those. So I've been doing some research on you, Bishop. Okay, uh uh-oh. My, my research involved uh, actually watching, I've mentioned this to you, watching one, your sermon from last Sunday. And uh, by the way, you have a special calling. Has anybody ever told you that? <laughs> <laughs> you had me Thank standing you. up in my office saying, hey, amen. Right? <laughs> uh, but having met you and, and, and watched your sermon, I think it's patently obvious to me that I have one shot at having any modicum of control over this conversation. That is, I better get my first question right, because i got a feeling I'm going to lose control here in a hurry. So I want to tee this up and ask you just a couple of questions. We'll just have a dialogue here. But uh, this is about Dallas being an equitable city. And uh, you were at a conference. We were just talking about a conference this last week that you hosted, actually. And you were quoted in the Dallas Morning News. But the following quote, and you were referencing young men, I believe, who get incarcerated in our city. And you, and it, you said, the same person who says I should be working is the same person who won't hire me. Ouch. Right? <laughs> Ouch. And uh, it's kind of like challenge accepted. And so it, the, the question that it tees up is, you and I have talked about this, large businesses as a rule, we don't engage with faith-based organizations. There's a lot of reasons why. But as we look at churches and men like you and people like you, you have in front of you every Sunday uh, people who you know, you know them at an intimate level, like nobody else in the community knows them. You know those who are wanting to re-enter and probably are ready to re-enter the workforce. And so the title of your sermon Sunday was Tapping In. How do churches, large businesses, our public policymakers tap in to each other. Well, we all have doctors. We all have something to bring to the table here that I think we can make a difference. we got to figure this thing out. How do we work together? So how would you respond to that? Well, you know, first of all, uh, let me say what a joy it is to uh, get to sit down and have a conversation with this this icon uh, of a CEO. You're truly legendary in terms of your scope and your effectiveness, and yet you have not lost the common touch which is a rare thing and reinforces within my heart and spirit the hope that there is a path forward because men like you uh, take time to listen and to hear. And so thank you very much for that. Uh, the, the reference and the quote that you made out of the Dallas Morning News was in direct reference to the criminal justice system. Our church has an extended 501c3 program called the Texas Offenders Reentry Initiative whereby we have helped 10,000 formerly incarcerated inmates to reduce the rate of recidivism and to enter back and acclimate back into society. It was then that I got the education and began to realize that this pious, largely sanctimonious statements that we often hurled out toward people who are underserved and said, this is America. 
the land of dreams and opportunities. Why don't you just get up on your feet and go get a job? And well, I learned the answer when I talked to the people who tried to do it. The reality is that if you have ever been incarcerated, I'm talking about nonviolent crimes of which 70% of the people incarcerated in America are in jail because of nonviolent crimes. We have turned jail into a big business uh, on the New York Stock Exchange. So it's profitable to incarcerate people for a whole lot of reasons. And so we tell that person when they are out of prison to go get a job, but we will not hire them if we see that they had a record, even if it was 25, 30 years right. ago. And the reality is if you've ever been incarcerated, it's hard to even get an apartment to stay in. So if I get out of prison and I can't get a place to stay and I can't get a job, how can I get up? So we, people don't go back into crime and go back into prison because they like the food in jail. They go back into jail because that's the only door that's open. Forging a way forward whereby we can create opportunities not only is the moral, right, and just thing to do, but it is actually cheaper to educate than it is to incarcerate inmates. There you go. <laughs> so if we can appeal to moral sensibilities, let's just look at it in fiduciary responsibilities and approach it from the perspective that we have almost created something worse than slavery. Lock people into this environment? To lock them into that situation is slavery. And by the way, inmates are producing products for big businesses all over the country. How is that not slavery? They, <laughs> we, our top, many of our top manufacturers are having their materials manufactured by uh, people who were incarcerated. And the other issue is, it's, it's free labor, it's cheap labor. Uh, you lose the right to vote because you've been incarcerated. You can't vote, you're working for nothing. How is that not slavery? So when you look at that, we have a responsibility. You and I were talking about being close to the same age and looking back over our lives. When you get up around my age, you want to leave the world better than you found it. If you haven't killed your giant by now, you're probably not going to kill it. <laughs> and you make peace with all the dreams that didn't happen and you start going for purpose over profit. In the pursuit of meaning, uh, we have- that, that was both depressing and uplifting in one breath. You know that. Yeah. <laughs> you got to drop it real fast. It's like Wonder Twins, you know? <laughs> But we have an opportunity to do something together that, that I think could change the world. You also mentioned about the, the reluctance that corporate America has to engage faith-based entities, churches in particular. Let me address that. Whenever I say church to you or say pastor to you, whatever your experiences are informs the definition of the term. When in reality, we can say the same word and mean two different things by it. My role as a pastor is in some ways similar to my buddy up the road, Jack Graham, but in other ways, it is very different. My parishioners expect something different from me than his parishioners would expect from him because of our history. I listened at the preceding interview that was going on and, and she made some statements about slavery in our history. Church was the only thing we could have. All of our leaders came out of the pulpit. Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King, 
on and on and on. They were all Sojourner Truth, all in some ways came out of the stage of our churches. Because all, all of our schools started in the basement of our churches. Because we could never afford therapy or psychology or counseling, all of our therapy came out of our churches. Because most of the entertainers from Shaka Khan to Aretha Franklin to Gladys Knight, all of our stars came out of our choir stands. So when we say church, the expectation is totally different. We have a responsibility not just to get people ready for heaven, but to fight to get them out of the hell on earth. I think there is a, a justifiable reason that gives us some distinction from other cultures and ethnicity because of what the church is for us. It is press. <laughs> it is how we disseminated information about where the sit-in was going to be or where we were going to march next. It is the thing that corporations like yourself with all of your resources cannot do. It is communication into our community. And if you understand that appropriately, that if you can get past what you think you see when you see me or, or some other clergyman and see the 15 million people that follow me on social media, when you get past that and see the 30,000 people that engage us in church and over a hundred million homes on television, we touch not only the incorrigibles who need a second opportunity at a job, but when you have an opportunity in a largely all white environment and you want diversity and you put up a sign and maybe something, you hire a headhunter or something like that, many times you can't find the person that's sitting in my pew. So my pew is not just the formerly incarcerated, it is also the millennial that we preached into going through college who came out with a master's or a doctorate degree and cannot get an appointment in your office. They're there too, clapping their hands and yeah. singing and going for it, trying to figure out why didn't it work like mama said it would because mama said if I went to school, worked hard and got a good education, I could get a good job. So us partnering together creates an opportunity I have in my choir, in my church, and other pastors all over Dallas and all over the country, have the person that you say you're looking for when you want diversity. Why don't you let us help make that connection? I, th I think sitting up here with you and having had this conversation, I, the Potter's House brought to you by AT&T. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I don't mean to be funny, but I, uh, I do, though, sit here and listen to this, and I think there are so many opportunities for companies like ours to interact with the churches and the knowledge that you have with these people, and, and uh, particularly when you talk about you know, folks who have been incarcerated. We are, in corporate America, asking ourselves over the next 10 years, where are we going to get a labor force? Right. Because we are not growing as a population. Right. And I think immigration is about to become less and less. And so where are we going to get a workforce? And so I listen to you talk and I think, wow, here's a wonderful opportunity to tap into a workforce. And how, how would we begin to do this? Do you have any thoughts on how we might begin to do this? First of all, most churches that are strong and established also have relationships with smaller churches through which we can develop networks that you would not believe It's utterly amazing. We have a separate 501c3 that is an economic development corporation. So you don't necessarily have to attach partnerships to the part 
of our infrastructure that does not, that may compromise so many people who work with you that may have varying views about God or faith. We have a separate EDC and a separate CDC through which it can be a conduit to continue to make this union uh, more simplistic and equally as effective. If you have a post and an opportunity for jobs, we could post it. We could expose it to 15 million people on our social media site. We could announce it over church. We could work with our Texas Offenders Reentry Initiative to send you the best of the best of people that we can find who are trying to get a, a leg up and get on their feet and we could work together. We don't need AT&T to buy communion cups. We don't need that. We don't need baptismal robes. We can take care of ourselves. We are not handicapped at all. We've survived for hundreds of years without corporate money. But where we have common interests for human development, there is a merging point and intersection that we do have in common that we ought to work together, and that is to raise people up. Right. Yeah. And all of us have a responsibility to be involved in. I love this idea, and I always enjoy interacting with people when you hear something, you go, I haven't heard that before, and I've had this, this experience with you over the last couple of weeks. There's some new thinking, there's some new thoughts, and, uh, and I think it's probably something that you could conceive of how do you scale it, as you say, you have church branches and so forth, but if you built a model, maybe you have something that's replicable into other communities and other Absolutely. churches, right? People will model it everywhere because what we want is a model that becomes a national template whereby we can work together. While corporations have been afraid of churches, politicians have never been. You're right, right? If we don't see them any other time when they get ready to get elected, they're going to come <laughs> by to see us. They are going to come by to see us, whether we want them to or not. They are going to come by and see us. And, and they, they show up in my office, too, but for a very different expectation. Yeah, yeah right? I bet. <laughs> they want your money. They want our votes. And, uh, you know, we can be so delicate about separation of church and Satan and all of that. There's a big discussion to be had about that. But it's never so delicate that they don't come when they want something from us. That delicacy only exists when we want something back. If we're going to have a more perfect union, there has to be reciprocity. Some things that will raise our underserved communities will only come when politicians can really engage and affect change and open up the door. But there are some things that politicians will not be able to do because they are so dependent upon the votes of the masses of people, they are easily scared away by any disruption. However, corporations can come in and buy a block and build a, a factory without anybody having to vote for you, as long as it's profitable, you can do some things that the mayor can't do. Yeah. I can do some things that neither of you can do. None of us can do anything until all of us do. It's gonna take all three parties. All three all right. parts pulling up together. If we could do this in Dallas, the whole nation looked at Dallas about this time, well, a few months from now, will be one year anniversary through before the, the slaying of our police officers. And all of the world looked at Dallas and we shine like a beacon star against the abys abysmal darkness of human depravity only because our police department, our characters, our communities withstood the test 
of a horrible situation by unifying ourselves together. We worked together. We stood together, black, white, and brown in such a way that people were really astounded at what we did in the city. Very true. Very true. I only say that because it became the catalyst for national discussion. No, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, everybody was talking about how our police department at that moment, how they handled the situations and how we did not have riots and we didn't have craziness and we didn't, we had sorrow, but we didn't have disruption like other cities and it became a template for other cities. If we can, if we can model that, we could model this. And I think that it is possible for us to model something that not only affects South Dallas, underserved communities, people who are in need here in the area, but also could be reverberate all the way to Watts, all the way to Harlem, all the way to Chicago. We could develop a template where we take responsibility for the inequity in our city rather than going blind to neighborhoods that you're scared to drive into at night. That's, it's well said. I, I, uh, this is a classic example of a lot of us as a society, we've gotten guilty of sitting back and waiting on our politicians and our public policymakers to deal with problems. And uh, there are some areas, this is one where business or religious leaders, we probably uh, we could step up and take a leadership role here and see if we can begin to make something happen. So I thank you for the challenge. You really have challenged me over the last couple of weeks. I want to go back to uh, the comments you made about the situation a year ago. You know, 2016 was obviously just a year of, I didn't live through the civil rights era, and uh, so I, I had not experienced just intense racial situations like we had in 2016. When the, the, the killings happened here last year, did you address that with your church? What did you communicate to your congregation? <laughs> I addressed it with my church. I addressed it with my national television audience. I put it on my talk show. I, I put it everywhere I could put it. We provided services for one of the families uh, whose officer was slain. We brought in the people from every walks of life right down in Baton Rouge, families who uh, had been killed through police violence. Here's the big takeaway. Because where our media is set up today to drive up controversy for ratings, it depends on who you listen to, what you think the truth is. Right. In the midst of them creating these huge conglomerates, these empires of news that, of which they are getting rich from, they have poisoned the water to make us think that if you cry out against police brutality, you don't respect police. And if you respect police, you can never challenge their integrity. That's ridiculous. That's like if you, if you, if you sue a doctor for malpractice and you hate doctors. Right. No, I hate, the mal I hate what you did. I don't hate doctors, I hate what you did. Holding people accountable in every walk of life is what makes us safe. We cannot go blind to each other's cry and say, you're faking it. There are 40 million black people in America. We can't, we are not at all monolithic. We do not agree about anything, but all of us agree about that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Do you really think we had a meeting one night? <laughs> and decided this is our story and we're going to stick to it no matter what. 
come on, just use common sense. (laughs) I'm not saying that every case the victims were innocent, but we have a tendency. I'll give you the the doctor that got drugged and and the the atrocities that United Airlines is, is dealing with. The first thing they, they tried to do was to discredit him in some way. Right. So if they could have found anything negative to say about him, does that then make it right that you drug him? Right. There is a right and a wrong, regardless of when I was 12, I stole cookies. That doesn't give you the right to beat me over the head when I'm 40. We have to just use common sense at the table of human behavior because when powerless people realize that people in power have lost compassion, that stimulates revolt. Well said. And it's happening all over the world and we cannot let it happen here. Reason people have to sit down and reason together because if we don't do it, the streets will do it in a way that hurt all of us. I have learned here I've learned here this afternoon the the definition of cruelty, and that is to be given this opportunity to interact with you and be given only 20 minutes. You are obviously a spiritual leader in this Dallas community, but what I have learned over the last couple of weeks is you're a thought leader in this community, and I'm very grateful to have this opportunity to get to know you, and I look forward to working with you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you.